Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the breakfasts for the week ending uh, the 26th of September. It was just a short one. It's Monday to Thursday because we had the Friday off to celebrate the grand final win. Go Tigers. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming on up on the podcast, you will hear our chat with Jill Stark, who uh, was in talking about her new book, When You're Not Okay, a toolkit for tough times. Also, uh, Simone Boldy came in to review animals. We had a great chat about that. And also, what did I talk about? What did I, I did, you went to, you did a comedy workshop. I did a comedy workshop and we had a little bit of a chat about that. <laughs> mm. uh, Elizabeth McCarthy came in to review the book Come a Madre, uh, very, very, very black comedy. And uh, we chatted the spiritual side of combi ownership. Triple R. Jill Stark is an award-winning journalist and author with a career spanning two decades in both the UK and Australian media. She spent 10 years on staff at The Age covering health and social affairs and is the best-selling author of Happy Never After. And her new book, When You're Not Okay, a toolkit for tough times, offers emotional first aid with tips and wisdom on how to find a path back to yourself. And she joins us now. Jill Stark, welcome back to Breakfast. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. How do you think this book differs from um, other self-help books that uh, you despise? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do do talk about that at the beginning of the book. I talk about um, the positive thinking movement and how I find that quite challenging. Um, Often those sort of uh, self-help books are very much, um, you know, the idea of like just look at yourself in the mirror every morning and repeat affirmations until you stop believing that you're shit, you know. (laughs) For a lot of us, this is a very unhelpful advice. Um, So I try to give a much more real and honest um, assessment, I think, of, of where we are and how we can and help ourselves. So it's not about smiling your way out of a crisis, but it's about um, gratitude and acceptance and looking for the chink of light even on a on a dark day. So I think often the positive mov- positive thinking movement tells us just to smile while our house is burning down around us. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's very helpful. So this, I think, hopefully it's practical um, and it comes from my own struggles and what I've learned through that. Um, I think a lot of us um, have these struggles and we often think that there's something wrong with us or that we're broken or we're unique and unusual when in actual fact there's not a single human alive who doesn't struggle and anyone who tells you that they don't are probably lying. Mm. Mm. And 2014-15 was a particularly gruesome calendar year. Yeah, and it's horrible. It's, um, so that was, yeah, I, I mean, I'd struggle with anxiety and depression probably since I was a kid, really, since I was a teenager growing up in Scotland. Um, but towards the end of that year, I mean, the year before my first book, High Sobriety, came out and it was a bestseller and I had everything I ever wanted. I had this dream job. I had written a book. I was dating an AFL player, which in hindsight is not the path to happiness. <laughs> I would not recommend that. But I, I had all the things that I thought were the... Um, the things that make us happy, all these external props that we're told will make us whole, and obviously that wasn't the case. And I, I had quite a serious breakdown, which I think turned out to be almost what my psychologist would call a breakthrough, not a breakdown. <laughs> and, um, you know, I really had to dig deep and, and find out what lay underneath that sort of sense of existential bereavement, that sense of what I've got all of these things and I still feel empty and lost. What's going on? I had to take nearly five months off. Um, my job at the age recovered rebuilt myself and this book is a sort of a toolkit for what I learned through those tough times. Where did you um, get all the tips from? Like, you know, did you just come up with most of these yourself or is these, you know, um, tips that you got off mates and and things like that or from reading other books or just 
Or is it just all of it? It's a lot of it from my own head and from my own experience. In the last book, in Happy Never After, the last chapter was a very short chapter of bullet points called Things I've Learned, maybe about, I think, 30 bullet points. And so many people who read that book said, oh, I find that bit really helpful. I tore the page out and put it on my wall. Benjamin Law said he wanted to have it tattooed on his head. He said (laughs) these were very helpful tips. I was like, okay, there's something in this. Maybe what if we expanded on those tips and put them in one place? And I actually have found myself going back to this book when I've been in a tough place, even um, just a couple of weeks ago when I had my book launch and I was going through my usual panic and melt. I know this is going to be a total failure. And two of my best friends both quietly suggested that there was a quite a good book that I could go and look to <laughs> for So I went to that book and, yeah, I actually find that my own advice was helpful. So I think that's a good endorsement of, of what I've learned. Um, there are some tips from I've learned from other people along the way. I'm sure people have their own that they could add to them. This is just my own take on, on the things that help and the things that can not help when we're not in a One of the things place. that kind of like came through really strongly in this and also in your, in your last book is that we, we don't have to strive to be happy and that's a really hard thing to understand when you're not feeling well is that happiness isn't a constant state and everything that we see around us it's almost like the world is geared to telling us that we need to constantly be happy whether it's our Instagram feeds or advertising or whatever it might be all the media around us is that something that it took you a while to work out yeah, as well it took me a long time and I think that's a real trap for us in the western world in this sort of consumer driven society that we're told that you know everything that we need and everything that we want we can we can buy it or we can get it or we can grasp it you know we can just get these breathable yoga pants or a Hilux and everything will be (laughs) perfect when actual fact happiness is what I've discovered is not about the happy happy ever after it's about the happy in between it's in these small moments it's in these moments of connection it's in the way that the sun streams in the window and your cat's basking in in the corner it's in a nice breakfast it's not that's constantly chasing. We're chasing something that we can never really reach. So I think when you start to accept that happiness is a transient state, like my parents taught me, as many parents do, like they always said to me, we just want you to be happy. And I find that quite a lot of pressure. I thought, well, but what if I'm not? And what if I'm not happy all the time? What's wrong with me? And that just took me a really long time to realize that the human condition is all the different emotions. And it's normal to feel anger and grief and frustration and disappointment. And when we try to push those feelings away and hang on to this feeling of bliss all the time, it's really when we get into a lot of trouble. So I think acceptance is a really big part of what I've tried to distill into this Mm. book. And dancing like no one's watching isn't just a figure of speech, is it? (laughs) No, I literally do that. So if you ever see a a woman standing in the middle of Princess Park in the middle of the day just dancing quietly to herself, that'll be me. I've realised that you know when we're when we're kids, or if you look at, go to a dog park and the the dogs are running off the leash, and you see this sense of abandonment. It's the way we used to play as kids. We just played like no one was watching. We ran at full tilt and we danced, and we didn't care what anyone thought. And then we grow up and we get crushed under the weight of adult responsibility and expectation, and we stop tapping into that play nature. So now I try really hard to take myself on dates, which sounds really sad, but it's actually very <laughs> empowering. Um, and really giving myself that attention the way that you would someone else who you you love in your life. And so. Sometimes if I'm walking around Princess Park listening to Gaga and I really want to dance, then I will just dance because that's when you feel much more liberated, when Mm. you allow yourself to tap into that play nature and not... Um, do like the word should I think should be banned from should be banned <laughs> from the dictionary but it's the, that word it's really the fast track to misery you know I should be happy I should be married I should be thinner I should be rich I should be all of these things we let go of that word and do what really brings us joy and brings us connection that's I think when we're a little bit more at peace mm. the book itself is um you know 
it's such an easy read. It's one of those things where you can just pick it up and like, you know, just go to a page and go, oh, yeah, that, that's really helpful if I do that. There's so many like good little bits in there. Um, do you... Do you take your own advice? <laughs> well, I mean, mostly, but not always. I guess it's it's like anything. No one does everything 100% perfectly all the time. Yeah. Otherwise, we'd all be, you know, like Zen Buddhas and we wouldn't need to be in therapy. But I think um, I do what, I, what I've found over the years and over the work that I've done and the therapy that I've done and the, the lessons that I've learned is that I don't, fi- I don't fall as far down the rabbit hole yes. as I used to because I know now how to pull myself back up yeah. and I can see the spiral when it starts. And also you can recognise when you are falling and when you do need to seek more help. Like, you, you know, there's so many people that go, just go for a walk or, <laughs> you know, just – and it's just like, yeah, I'm, all right, I'm, I'm doing that but also I'm still, you know, struggling. So, um, you know, and also like in the book where you talk about um, like it's each to their own. So, you know, if something doesn't work for you, that's okay if you want to go on medication. Like I've been on medication mm. before, but only for a, a, you know, a reasonably short period of time because that's all, that's what I needed at that time. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think that's important to, you know, recognise that we all have different needs, but there are some things that we can all benefit from. We're all different. From. And I think one of the other things I say in this book is um, everyone, like absolutely look for the helpers in your life look for people who can support you but look for the right helper so Mm. for the right situation so you might have different friends in your life and I think there's we fall into a trap of thinking that one person can provide all of our needs particularly in relationships and actually the same with friends that I have friends who are the ones that that will I'll just watch the bachelor with who I need to have distraction and there's other friends who I can sit and sob with and Mm. and those and try and and you get into a lot of trouble I think when you go to the the wrong friend with the wrong in the wrong moment so it's it's learning what you need and learning to ask for what you need but also realizing that people give advice through the prism of their own experience so it's not always going to be what you need in that moment Mm. yeah and technology comes in for a bit of focus too yeah well i mean i think it's technology has been great in many ways like I, I use technology to help my mental health. I have an app called um, Mood Pixel where I actually can track my mood every day with a color. And so I look back because my brain will lie oh. to me when I'm really not in a good place. And it will say, you have always been this way. Things have been terrible for months. And then my mood diary says, actually, you had a really good day just three days ago. And that's really helpful. But then, obviously, the other side of that is social media can be really difficult and really problematic when you're not in a good place because on Instagram, everyone's life is perfect and babies aren't crying and dogs aren't pooing <laughs> and no one's partner's leaving pubic hair in the shower. And all just, everyone's life is you know, insta-perfect. So when I think for, for me, it's realizing that that is all a performance. And so now I try to present a very real version of myself on social media. I feel very strongly that we would be in a lot better position if we didn't have this fairy tale filter over everything that we put up online. So uh, accepting that everyone's life is, is, has problems um, and that your life is not different in that regard and that everyone is carrying an invisible battle that you can't see, even if they're presenting a an image of perfection to the world and combating worry is something that you'll be tackling soon yes so i've got um what i've learned from the last couple of books and through like many years of experience um i'm 
distilling into a workshop. It's called Warrior to Warrior. So it's about turning your struggles into strength. It's going to be in Thornbury on the 20th of October. It's a three-hour workshop. You can go to my Facebook page, Jill Stark, or you can go to my website, jillstark.com.au, if you want to find out more and buy a ticket. Um, it's, it's really, I think, going to be a very empowering day for anyone who struggles and wants to turn those struggles into strength, and that's pretty much all of us at some point mm. in their lives, I think. All right. When You're Not Okay, a toolkit for tough times is out now through Scribe, and we've been speaking with its author, Jill Stark. Uh, oh, oh, and, of course... Lifeline, uh, the number 13, 11, 14, which you, you have a re- resources at the back of the book as Absolutely, well. Absolutely, yeah. So anyone who's, who's in having any trouble, and I spoke at a Lifeline dinner just recently, they do incredible work um, helping people in crisis. So, And uh, Beyond Blue, I should plug them as well. I work with Beyond Blue as well. So <laughs> definitely get in touch with them if you need any support. Thanks, Jill. Thank you. Triple R. It's time to discover books with the widely agreed on to be glowing, uh, Elizabeth McCarthy. <laughs> glowing. Mm. Uh, well, okay, by the end of this review, I might share some information with you mm-hmm. that isn't so glowing. Um, I'm going to be reviewing today Argentinian author Rock Larraquai's first English published novel called Coma Madre. And I tend to enjoy novels about the professional classes behaving badly, Um, you know, really pushing the boundaries of their professional oaths and good taste and fine manners outlined in their position descriptions. So lawyers, cops, scientists and doctors who go crooked, who are mad, bad and dangerous to know, um, and a law unto themselves. So the world of fiction has thrown up some incredible characters particularly bad cops i guess are sort of the most um the most widely sort of portrayed um professional class turning bad turning mm-hmm. evil um but rock Larraquai in his novella, this is a novella, it's only 120 pages um comma madre has given us a bunch of meddlesome bonkers doctors working in an a um, cancer clinic in Buenos Aires in 1907, who not only should be deregistered but probably hung, drawn and quartered in a barbaric fashion uh, because these doctors are themselves gob-smackingly barbaric and conscience-free in the experiments they inflict on the cancer patients that are under their care. So in 1907, Buenos Aires, some research comes to hand that when a human being is guillotined... Oh, my God. (laughs) ..a.k.a. had their head chopped off, they retain all mental faculties for nine seconds post-chop. Nine seconds. Nine seconds. And the doctors at this cancer clinic come across this information and decide that the team will lure cancer patients to their clinic via advertising a miracle new cure that doesn't actually work and then say to individual patients, you are one of the very few for whom this cure doesn't work. You're going to die. Would you like to donate your body to medical science? Sign these papers and come with me into this room. The donation starts right now. Oh, my God. And then the team of doctors insert the cancer patient's head into a guillotine-type contraption and the team of doctors stand around taking notes about what the person says for the nine seconds (gasps) Mm. that they are still, um, you know, still have their mental faculties with them after they've had their... um, head severed. Just to give a glimpse into the afterlife? A glimpse, yeah. it, exactly. So um, the purpose of this is because the doctors 
believe that in those nine seconds, the person sees the afterlife and they gabble stuff that will report and shed light on what is in the afterlife. Mm. It's funny because I'm just reading the Hippocratic Oath and I don't see anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this is a work of fiction and it's both horrific and hilarious. It's, It's got a really dark humour under it all, um, but it, it is really grisly. And um, I started to feel ill reading this and I'm feeling unwell even talking <laughs> to yeah. about it right now, um, which is very dramatic, I know. Now, the second part of this novel, so the novel is divided into two parts. The second part of the novel scoots forward 102 years and it concerns the great-grandson of one of the doctors. And this great-grandson lives in contemporary Buenos Aires, well, contemporary, it's 2009, and he's an artist and he wants to get plastic surgery so that his face looks exactly the same as his mate, another artist. These artists cannot decide on which of them the other should look like and so they decide to both get plastic surgery to look like a third artist. So, So this is the second part of the novel and... It doesn't actually quite work. The first part of the novel is kind of the genius part yeah. of this book and the second part left me feeling a bit like, mm, I'd rather go back into the hospital that made me sick with all the doctors behaving, mm. you know, completely crazily. Um, the suspense and foreboding that I felt in the first part of the novel didn't continue into the second part. Um, and this this is an incredible incredibly written novel it's beautifully written it's very sharp um the dialogue is really kind of um catchy and um sort of um i don't know i don't want to say hip but it's just kind of really snappy yeah it's really snappily written um and it's a really short novel and if you really like horror and the unexpected and the surreal and doctors experimenting and doing weird things in a fiction in a fictional world mm. then and you have a strong stomach then this kind of wackadoodle novel <laughs> is mm. probably for you yeah that sounds absolutely terrifying so it's kind of like two stories mashed together a bit i mean the, this the f- is the thing i don't think the link between the two parts of the novel necessarily works but i don't want to discourage yeah. people who love um, sus- really good suspense, really good horror from not reading this. Because the first part could have been like an incredible short story, Mm-mm. but the fact he's written this second part um, that doesn't quite work to my mind, um, don't let that put you off from... Mm. And was this written in his language and translated, did you say? Yes. So this uh-huh. is this is an Argentinian author, um, uh, Rock Larraquai, and he he's actually very well regarded in Argentina. This book was nominated last year for um, a National Book Award in America. So this is the English translation, and it just came out locally via text publishing. Uh, and, you know, you can get your hands on it. So this is an author that a lot of English speakers, English readers such as myself, have never heard, never heard of this author before. Um, but it's not hard to see why it's created quite a stir. Mm. And it comes from... so. It's believable or plausible because the motivations of the physicians comes from a benign place in terms of well, they are they just barbaric or are they do they perceive of themselves as trying to get a greater great... scientific understanding? Of... Yes, so the, it's basically civilized people behave. Um, 
starting to behave in uncivilised ways and how far is that going to go? Mm. That's what's really interesting and it's kind of, it's believable. Yeah. Yeah. You can imagine, you know, in, in the early 1900s in medicine, they were doing all, there were all sorts of crazy ideas. Yeah. Some people might look at contemporary medicine and sort of say some, you know, there are some, in the wellness industrial complex, there are some kind of crazy ideas about cures and things like that. Mm. Um but but back in 1907, you know, there were all sorts of sort of um, unusual medical practices going on. But this is, yeah, this is something else. Um, you know, the fact that they're luring cancer patients to a cancer <sighs> clinic yeah. with this miracle cure, which is only like water, um, water and lemon juice mixed with vanilla, wow. and telling all these individual patients um this this will cure this cures most people but you're unfortunately in the three percent that it doesn't cure and uh how about donating your body to medical science and the mm. way they do that is is kind of humorous and really oh wicked. it sounds Wic- like a wicked argentinian league of extraordinary gentlemen or chris <laughs> morris or something. yeah yeah so um so yeah i would i would really recommend this novel but you know you kind of need a strong stomach it's making my honestly i cannot i could not read that i yeah. It doesn't surprise me you can, Elizabeth, because mm. I know your taste in humour, but my uh, my palms feel funny, you even talking about this. Wow. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was um, – yesterday I came to work in the RRR office and I lasted four hours because I felt really queasy. And I thought it was something to do with the food that I ate on Sunday. And I think it might – have something to do with reading this novel, yeah. And that sounds very dramatic, I know, but I have it. I have a big history of sort of um, cancer, <laughs> um, which I'm over now. But you know, ten years ago I had cancer, and so I'm wondering if this sort of stirred up all sorts of things in me. I don't know. I well, it think... sounds like a very visceral novel, so that it wouldn't is. surprise me. It is, yes. yeah. Um, so yeah, it's called Coma Madre by uh, Roque Larigai, and uh, from Argentina. Mm. And may contain enjoy literally yeah. beheaded. Thanks, Elizabeth. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Uh, I was away on Tuesday. Sorry. Yeah, I noticed. Sorry, sorry, everybody. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it was very important. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. I uh, I was doing um, comedy workshops in uh, country Victoria, in Kerrang and Kahuna. So you've been there before? I think I've driven through Korea. I didn't know Kahuna was a real place. Good comedy yeah. names. I know, isn't it? Kahuna. <laughs> <laughs> they had a big water tank with Kahuna written on it. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Big Kahuna. Cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, where were you going on Swan Hill? Echuca. Maybe. It's just, or is it Turang that I drove through? Oh, maybe. <laughs> going to Warnable? Who knows? Kerrang, Turang. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the other thing is... Just onomatopoeically, Kerrang sounds like a joke that just didn't work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Kerrang. <laughs> uh, so I'd been booked to um, – I was running a couple of comedy workshops and then in, in Kahuna on the Tuesday night was doing uh, doing a show. Just, they had an organised comedy night. Um, and the idea was that uh, it, during the workshops, if um, – Anyone wanted to jump up at the show, they could. Mm. Um, however, the first workshop, I, I rocked up, and the the guy that had organised it, it was kind of organised through the um, like community services there, and the youth worker was like, 
Listen, all they've got to do in this town is footy and netball and I wanted to find something else for them to do. So I thought, you know, this would be a good idea. And this guy, he did stand up many, many years ago. So he just, you know, liked it. Um, I thought this is a good idea. Anyway, because um, it was school holidays, one child showed up. Oh, no. <laughs> and one kid and his, and his brother had bought him um, and his brother had walked him over because he just didn't know where it was. And so his brother's there and he goes, oh, I'm just here because oh, he didn't know where to go. And I'm like, and his brother's like, just stay, just stay. And I'm like, yeah, you can stay if you like. Come on, this, you know, come on in. Uh, and then, um, but after about 20 minutes or so, I told the brother that he didn't have to stay. Because right. <laughs> he, he wasn't into my idea of comedy and... <laughs> He already he was already an expert on comedy. Oh, okay. Yeah, he didn't he didn't need to see any other types of comedy. <laughs> he knew what he liked. <clears throat> and if that involved <clears throat> offending people, then yeah, oh. people just should learn how to take a joke. Yeah. I was like, you know you don't have to be here. You can you can go. And he went, I didn't want to be here anyway. I'm like, Okay, mate. Oh. All right, well thanks for thanks for coming. So the crowd size halved? Yeah. But then it was like the the younger brother, he was like, you know, he'd watch, he goes, oh, I didn't think this would end up in an argument. <laughs> and I was like, because <laughs> we were like, we were just discussing, you know, whether, what something needs to be, to be funny. Mm. And, you know, it was just, it was actually a great discussion. Um, and the brother was like, we're not arguing. We're just having a, you know, good chat. And anyway, he left not long after that. Because <laughs> I've. Because I was showing, so, and he just wasn't interested. He, it was more that he wasn't interested in being there. Yeah. He just wanted to go home and watch his anime films. Um, well, that's what he said. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, so the younger kid uh, who stayed, I still can't work out whether he really wanted to be there or not. Like huh. I, it was just one of those. But we, I spent two hours with. What a him. gift! Imagine getting two hours solo yeah. coaching from Geraldine Hickey. <laughs> no, yes. what an so, honour. But we sat there and um, and I just, I said, you know, part of stand-up is just being able to get up and, and, and talk. So I started with, like, what's your, like, what's something, what's one of your favourite things? And he said, oh, holidays. So I'm like, all right, just stand up and um, just talk about holidays. And I think he's, I think he mentioned, he goes, I think at the start he just went, yeah, I like holidays. And then he spoke for, at length, about everything else but holidays. <laughs> And it was and it was great. He just talked about his, you know, about his family and stuff. And I asked him a lot of questions, and I was like, oh, you know, just to help him keep going. And then, um, is it just the two of you in the room? The 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 other guy um, who was running it was there as well. Okay, that sounds daunting for the kid. Yeah, but he really, yeah. yeah. Kids don't realise how daunting that is. Yeah, <laughs> to get up and stand and just you know talk. But he was, you know, took it in his stride. He's like, oh yeah. Um, and he talked about he's got twin brothers and his brothers go fishing with, with their dad and stuff. And I'm like, I was, but he goes, I don't really like fishing and I don't like footy and, and stuff. And I went, oh, yeah, like what, do you, like what do you and your dad have in common? You know, what do you – and he went, oh, I've, all, I've almost got enough hair for a ponytail <laughs> like my dad. <laughs> well, this is the sweetest thing. Um <clears throat> And then, like, he did that. And then there was, like, you know, maybe five minutes to go. And I was, like, oh, like in- internally I was, like, I can't believe I've gotten through this. This is exceptional. 
And then I said, um, I said, so do you have any any questions at all? And he's like, um, do you believe in God? Oh, and then we had a <laughs> b- bit of a chat about what happens. Like he told me his theory about what happened after you die. Um, and, you know, spoke for length about that. And I went, okay, um, do you have any questions about comedy? <laughs> And he went, hmm. <laughs> and then he goes, um, do you think if um, I got a um, a piece of paper and just tore a bit off, could you um, write your name on it for my mum? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. That's so sweet. And I went, do, does your mum want my autograph? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Funny way to ask for an autograph. And then, so I couldn't work out whether he had sat through two hours of this workshop just to get (laughs) for his mum. But he did say when he was doing his stand, he, you know, he said that on Mondays and Tuesdays is technology is banned in the house. So, no, yeah, no technology on Monday and Tuesdays. I'm like, what do you do? Mm. And he went, "Uh, we just go to the park and hop on the swing. For a bit, for eight hours. <laughs> yes. Well, did you do anything else? He goes, oh, no. <laughs> anyway, so well, that explains why here at the workshop, mean, no technology. Meanwhile, no. he's asking the local priest for uh, <laughs> <laughs> tips on punchlines and the rule yeah. of three. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I, I did that, and then then the next day, bit of a um, the next day I had one in Kahuna, a uh, bit more people. Okay, increased the size of the class, mm. five. <laughs> Five Year 7 girls. Five girls in Year 7. Wow. Who, and I said, you know, I would say, um, so, like, you know, I'd start, like, um, with, like, let's, you know, talk about who's your favourite comedian, what kind of comedy do you like? Mm. You know, and they go, oh, they go who's your favourite comedian? We, we don't know any. <laughs> I'm like, what's your, um, what type of comedy do you like? I, I don't, nah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what? Let's talk about why why you wanted to come tonight. <laughs> <laughs> want to know the meaning of life. Yeah. They were like, we we do theatre. I'm like, oh, do you? Okay, okay. so you love you love improv games and, and the, yes. And so I just got them to play. I'd I'd explain a new improv game to explain how a game worked and their ability to not comprehend what was going. On. I was like, I don't I don't know how else to explain. <laughs> How to do this. Like it started with one activity. I'm like, just get in partners and tell each other an embarrassing story that's happened to you. You know, you can make it up. But, you know, just think of a time that you were embarrassed and it's, you know, it's a good starting point for writing a funny story. So I said, um, you know, get in partners, tell each other the funny story and then you're going to get up and you're going to tell your partner's story. That's that's. I don't know how else to explain. Yeah, it's very concise what you just did then. Thank you. And then, but they were like, "What?" So can we do it together? I'm like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> You're going to tell your partner's story. The problem was that there was one group of three. So um, I said, you're going to tell each other and then you're all going to tell someone else's story. And they're like, but wait, sorry, okay, I, I'm just going to tell my story. And I'm like, no, no, no. I thought we had to do it as a group. I'm like, no, oh, I cannot. I cannot keep up. I said, what, what games do you like to play at your theatre? I'm like, oh, we like doing this. I'm like, oh, let's do that one. Um, and then I had to um, – then because there was a show – I did the workshop and there was the show that night. Mm. And then I had – there was like a, you know, three-hour – 
break in between. And uh, once you've seen the water tank in Kahuna, <laughs> there is <laughs> not a lot to do. <laughs> anyway, it's good to be back. Triple R. It's that time of the week to uh, get some, um, get a bit of dose of film with cinephile Simone Ubaldi. Hi, Simone. Hello. Hello. I'm my bit of dose. Okay, these cans don't work at all, so I'm going to take them off. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, they're, they're no good. No, I swap. Is my them. voice all right? I had them and went, <laughs> I don't like this? these ones. So <laughs> I'll leave these for Simone. Yeah. Uh, you sound fine. <laughs> that's really weird. I can't hear myself. Is that how I don't sound? Yeah. Um, yes, we can talk about film. <laughs> I'm um, just filling out time because I don't have that much to say about the movie. But I hear you guys have heard it. It's called Animals. Yes, mm-hmm. we've seen it. Oh, good. Well, and we interviewed good. the director. Sophie Hyde. She's from mm-hmm. Adelaide. Yes. Fun fact, she made a series for the ABC called Effing Adelaide, um, <laughs> which is about her love-hate relationship with what is also my hometown. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sophie Hyde made uh, 52 Tuesdays, which won the Dramatic Award at Sundance a couple of years back. And um, this is a co-production. So for anyone who's seen it or heard of the film and spotted Elias Shawcat in one of the lead roles and otherwise Irish accents, that is why it has an Australian connection. So it was made in Dublin but by an Australian director. Uh, with a soundtrack, <laughs> does this sound like Phil? With a soundtrack by um, a couple of people who are now Victorians, as a matter of fact, which is um, mm. a very good soundtrack. Mm. Anyway, Did you not like the film? No, nah, not really. There, mm. Look, that's it's reductive. There were parts yeah. of the, I thought it was uh, an amazingly directed film with largely great performances yeah. that had a pretty satisfying middle. The beginning and end, unfortunately, were like the foretaste and aftertaste were... Not great Not- for me. For those people who have no idea what we're talking about, um, Animals is a film, <laughs> which is Mon. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see it. Um, it's a film about two girls in their uh, early 30s who are um, a with Nail and I style uh, nihilistic um, friendship couple mm. who drink and party and have casual sex and essentially and just enjoy each other's company in this kind of decrepit share house that they both live in um, and their beautiful kind of um, isolated, uh, pretentious uh, world is violated when one of the girls, Laura, who's 32, meets and falls in love with a classical pianist and uh, kind of follows her heart uh, away from, towards him and away from drinking and perhaps into a more conservative uh, life mm. to the outrage of her friend Tyler, who's played by Elias Shawcat from Arrested Development, so an American, you know, in Dublin for some reason. Um, and Tyler is offended by Laura's embrace of the conservative and conventional mm. and throws some roadblocks in her way to that life, including a uh, poetry salon organiser uh, who becomes the sort of bait for a possible infidelity and that's mm. kind of the movie it's but it's really about it's not so much about it's partly about the lifestyle but it's really about the relationship between Tyler and Laura mm. and how uh, uh, insular it is don't you think it's an exploration on women's friendships coming to an end <laughs> <laughs> yes 
I mean, it is. It's an exploration of women's friendships coming to an end and how uh, there's a lot of space and time for things when you're young that you lose space and time for as you evolve and mature as a person. However, these women aren't 23. And when the film opened and and they were just what I found to be like repulsively pretentious, I was like, (laughs) it's fine because they're 23. And that feeling of deep intimacy and connection and having the most special relationship that ever existed is an important experience that you have when you're 23 and eventually you kind of pack it away and evolve different kinds of relationships and empathies and whatever. But they're not 23. They're, you know, (laughs) they're too old to be. (laughs) They are way too old. Behaving like they are. It's not even, it's not the boozing and the partying and the, ooh, don't give me a baby, I don't know how to hold it, I'm going to spill wine in its face. Mm. It's not that. It's the frequent quoting of poetry. It's the inability to (laughs) envisage, you know, a full-time professional role or have empathy for anyone who has one. It's referring to yourself as a writer when you've written 10 pages in 10 years. Just, you know, various kind of things that, again, would play and read very well in 23-year-olds, but in 33-year-olds I'm like, you people are just idiots. Do do 29-year-olds, are they the new 23-year-olds? Well, evidently. (laughs) I I think they are, though. Do Mm. you? Yeah. Do you think they would like you saying that? I don't Probably think they'd be listening to I'm, me. I'm recently 31. Ah, oh, bless. I'm too old for this shit. How <laughs> often do you take MDMA? Because according to <laughs> the Twice film a week. Animals. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, okay, good. Yeah, uh, I can't hold babies. <laughs> I mean, it, it may well be. The film does not appear. I mean, it's like, you know, a small independent film. It did quite well. It, it screened at Sundance. It premiered at Sundance. does not f- seem to have had the kind of resonance you would expect where there's a whole generation of Mm. second-tier millennials embracing it, going, yes, this is our lived existence. Um, But I don't know. I didn't think it was a bad film. I actually thought it was a beautifully directed Mm. film and the performances were really strong. Can I ask? Yeah. No. Sorry. Okay, no, you go ahead. (laughs) Sorry, I'm too young for this. Um, Is it self-referential at all? Like, does it acknowledge that these characters are too old to behaving the way they are and that's the ridiculousness of it or not? No. Ah, okay. Because I thought that angle would make sense by the way you're describing it. No. See, for me, I didn't – I guess I didn't think about how old they actually were. I just – I think I just imagined that they were, you know, young and – I'm like, yeah, they're younger. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) They're little babies. Yeah. I was like, you're younger. You're about to grow up. Yeah. Uh, no. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, the Francis Ha c- c- mm. kind of explores also the the artist or the self perceived artist that just doesn't really quite have the talent to back it up. Yeah, and this film kind of touches on that as well. It does, but it's it's sort of forecasted very early in the film, and the point that we arrive at is that you know the well, in fact, Tyler makes multiple references to this as Laura's muse. Um, creating is not about hours spent in front of a computer because nothing prosaic could apply to the dreamy life of an artist. So, mm. in fact, she's just been generating for 10 years what will inevitably be her her fox howl of a novel, Yeah, which we see her. You know. I mean, this is, this is also germane to you because you write, you're deeply involved in the arts, uh, you know, so... so I'm an idiot. No, emotionally mature. So the, the, the film, the reason, you know, you're you're very sensitive to 
all of these issues. Oh, goodness. You've just, you don't know the world that you've just uncapped. <laughs> <laughs> so I ghostwrite people's memoirs because it is commercially viable. Mm. And maybe because I'm not an artist and, and just, and all of that sort of, the self-faith that you need to have um, and the ambition and the sense that there is some sort of, um, like, knighted quest in your pursuit of creativity. I do not feel any of those things, mm-hmm. which is why I have this kind of natural natural antipathy to people who do, possibly. Yep. Maybe I'm just jealous. I don't know. <laughs> oh, my God. But do you think, <laughs> she, but do you think she had that... You know, if she, if someone's claims themselves, because oh, I had an issue with this as well. Mm. That you know, when she said, "I'm a writer, I'm a writer," um, uh, and then we find out exactly how much she's written, and it's like, "Oh, no, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not." And in fact, she does spend part of the film saying, "Well, maybe I'm not," and that's it. that's her process in the film is to sort of come to terms with how she may have wasted significant portions of her life. Mm. Um, yeah, it's just, it's really problem for anyone. There, there is some small portion of the population that enjoys poetry and then there's going to be some small portion of that portion that's going to respond very positively to these characters as being um, expressing something inherently kind yeah. of true and beautiful and free. They are absolutely two and, and women that I would never want to hang out with. Yeah, they're oh, awful okay. people. But but I'm happy to watch them yeah. on 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 screen and go. Not, yeah, you go, girl. <laughs> Not awfully portrayed, and I think that yeah, like fundamentally, you know, I'm speaking to the the people in the world, not the nature of the film, and it's actually a really fantastically made film with a kick-ass soundtrack. Yes, Zoe Barry I enjoyed. I really enjoyed watching it. Yeah, I, yeah. I I hated the beginning and end, and enjoyed the middle. Daniel, did you like it? Well, I'm. Um, I find this opinion really refreshing mm. uh, because, yeah, they are they are wankers, but I just kind of lean into it. Mm. Mm. I'm I have a deep, again, antipathy towards wankers. <laughs> <laughs> deep, yeah. deep. Like Ken, who's having a sa- it's twenty nineteen. Yeah. yeah, there are no literary salons, and if there are, we should find them and stamp them out. <laughs> You can have one night at the pub, that's it. <laughs> Chairman, you bowl me. Uh, thank you so much, Simone. The film's called The Animals and by Sophie Hyde. Triple R. You're listening to The Breakfasters on Triple R. My name's Mon, filling in for Sarah and Geraldine. And Daniel are filling in for themselves. Yes. Congratulations. Thanks very much. Uh, what's What's up? Oh, Daniel bought <laughs> show and tell in. I did. Now, uh, our... Family car, which I've mentioned before. So the VW. We grew up with a 1968 combi van. Yeah. And it had this combination of benches and seats that it's it seated nine, but there were fewer belts. And, you know, it's oh, like. I understand. Yeah. And it's sliding door, you know, you had to crash it shut and you could hear it minutes before it turned up. So <laughs> when you're waiting at a friend's house to be picked up, you could hear it and then say your goodbyes and gather your things and step outside and it would just roll up. Uh, so, and the timing was perfect and, um, you know, it was this kind of haggard white thing and, um, you know, my sisters, when they were being driven to school, they would ask to be dropped off around the corner because they were too embarrassed and would upset their friendships and mum hated it too. And, you know, it was, it, it was like a lightning rod for their marriage for decades. Like, uh, mum hated that it broke down so often and dad just loved how easy it was to fix. Uh, how long, when did you did you get a new car at one stage though? 
Yeah, yeah, ultimately, ultimately, because the combi just became too much. Like, you know, th- there was there was a time where mum mum was like, "Get rid of it," mm. <laughs> and so hard, <laughs> get rid of it. And so and so instead, he bought a second one for spare parts. <laughs> It's not quite what I meant. No, exactly. Um, And, you know, he would, there were, because he would always, he was quite proud of the way he would manage it. Like he would hook up the choke to the accelerator when the cable broke and he would, he once drove home from interstate without a clutch and he would place bricks at his feet to oh keep God. a p- pedal from sliding off its hinge. And then in the winter, you'd be driving in the winter, but the, all the windows will be down. It was freezing just so, because all the fumes oh. f- brought about by this hot exhaust and faulty oil pressure. Oh so, it, you know, it, we didn't all asphyxiate in the car. Anyway, that, that was when it was broken. Uh, and then we would go to Canberra. I remember there was a road trip to Canberra and everybody was... Because combi drivers honk at each other and wave. Mm. And um, that's, you know... But normally when a car honks at the combi, it's because, like, another part's fallen off. But <laughs> going up to Canberra for, I think this was, a like, a um, Vietnam War anniversary, it was, a, you know, other combi drivers were honking and it was more pleasurable than, hey, something's gone. But anyway, I was... I've moved into a new place and have um, was going through all these books and I found a book that I've ended up with, which was a user manual for this combi. <gasps> and the, the original combi or the spare parts combi? <laughs> <laughs> Did your dad write it? The, well, it's <laughs> no, but someone and it's it's absolutely it, haggard. There is I've looked online. There are much more better versions than this. Much more better. It's there are <laughs> there are. I mean, this is haggard as hell. Yeah. Um, But it's called How to Keep Your Volkswagen Alive, a manual of step-by-step procedures for the complete idiot. Oh, my God. It's like the original Volkswagens for dummies. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And I'll I'll just – there's an excerpt. I'll I'll just read some parts from it because it's quite – it's unlike a car manual I've ever read before. Uh, It says, your Volkswagen is not a donkey, but the communication considerations are similar. Your car is constantly telling your senses where it is at, what it's doing and what it needs. I don't speak donkey, but I'm fairly conversant in Volkswagen and will help you learn the basic vocabulary of this language so your bus can become an extension of your own sensory equipment. Perhaps the idea of feeling about your car is a little strange, but herein lies a type of rapport which will bridge the communication gap between you and your transportation. Okay, so already oh, it's like this is an yes. unusual manual. While the levels of logic of the human entity are many and varied, your car operates on one simple level and it's up to you to understand its trip. Talk to the car, then shut up and listen. Feel with your car. <laughs> Use all of your receptive senses. And when you find out what it needs, seek the operation out, perform it with love. The type of life your car contains differs from yours by time scale, logic level, and conceptual anomalies. But is life nonetheless. Its karma depends on your desire to make and keep it alive. Oh my I can goodness. see why your dad was so wedded to Yeah, or why all combi users mm. appear to have this you know, psychedelic attitude bond. No wonder they honk at each other. Yeah, exactly. They're sensorily connected. That's right. And... But it's dead now and it's gone. And and so this manual, you know, it lasted, I mean, 68. There's pictures of, there's drawings of brains in there. What is that? <laughs> Why is there diagrams of a human brain in a Volkswagen combi 
And it's dead manual. set. A re- you, you're absolutely right. And it is the. It's not a joke diagram of a brain. It's got the. Uh, you know, it's got the cerebellum and the spinal cord and the medulla oblongata. Um, I mean, I'll read this bit. I don't know if it'll be interesting. The green oil light is the only gauge of your engine's oil system. It must be checked every time you start. I don't know. I don't know what's going to do with brains. They're talking you, about oil lights. You use your brain to ascertain yeah, you use this part of the brain to check the green oil light. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is, that's amazing. And uh, And so now, you know... It's gone, but there is a hubcap. Where's the hubcap? The hubcap's hanging on, like, the back fence. Oh, yeah. I see. What he... happened? Where did it go? Did it get sold? Did it go to museum? Uh, I, that's a good question. I mean, we don't, we don't, we tend not to think, you don't want to talk about it? I don't, it was one of those things where it's like, if mum's had a wine, it's like the combi will come up and then everyone's like, oh, crap. <laughs> Like, settle in for half an hour. Then you all go outside and look at the hubcap. Yeah, exactly. Um, But it's, yeah, and but we have, she buys him, she buys him, like, Volkswagen trinkets. Like, so I was like, oh, because it's gone. But it's like, oh, here's a, you know, here's a little something that you can dust, like, that sits on a shelf. Like, here's a, here's a key ring. I want to, do you remember the day that it was gone and how your mum felt? Uh. Yeah, I mean, Dad makes her feel guilty about it. So she, the relief would have still been, you know, it, yes, I'm sure she's very happy, especially because the, mm. the second one is gone as well. Um, Just imagine her inviting all her friends over, <laughs> standing in the drive. It's gone. Yeah, well, this is, this is right. Like, you couldn't invite people. I mean, you could, but Mum would refuse. Because she's what? like, she doesn't want to see people with two combis in the front yard, <laughs> you know, because they'll... They'll judge her. Wow. Uh, and then now when we drive past combis for sale, mum will be like, oh, do you want to buy one? Like, do you want to? And so it's it's like it's the connection. It's like the forgiveness yeah. has blossomed. But I think dad prefers to hold on to the feelings of resentful resentment that it was taken away. That's so funny. Um, when I was in high school, I once babysat. I babysat a few times. Um uh, but there was one child that I babysat for whose uh, younger, whose dad had um, converted a combi, and so it sat in, and it was just her toy. So it sat in the backyard, and she, and he'd rigged it up so obviously it couldn't go anywhere. I don't think it was had wheels or anything, mm. but you could still turn the blinkers on and turn the lights on cool. and stuff. So, mm. so she just had her toy combi. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean the thing about this combi as well is, you know, when because you know how kids play corners. Yes. When, I yes. mean, a corner in a combi. Is death trap. Oh, mate. Yeah, you can get, like, a run-up. <laughs> yeah. Mate, you tried in, in a semi-trailer. <laughs> oh, really? Dad was a truck driver, my brother and I. We'd, we'd stand, we, we'd do corner standing up. That's how great it was. We'd be in the sleeper, and because we were tall, you know, we were short, we could stand up it on the bed, and then you'd, you'd go around the corner, whoa, and then you'd fall over on a bed. <laughs> On a, on a freeway. <laughs> oh There's God. no quarters on the freeway, but it yeah. was, you know, it was just... It doesn't stop you playing corners. Oh, it was a happy time. Imagine that, a hip yeah. and shoulder on a freeway. Yeah. What a childhood. Yeah. We I, we used to play swervies, which I think involved my dad oh, swerving. Yes. And then we never played swervies again after my sister swerved with such vigour that she whacked her head on the side window. Oh, and my. then it was just like radio on. 
Yeah. Everybody stop stop moving. No we will talking. not do this again. I yeah. did swervies as an adult recently. <laughs> like I was in a car with a friend and we're like, do you remember swervies? And we're like, yes, yeah, swervies. I'm like, oh, that's, that's why we don't do that anymore. <laughs> During your driving test. It's supremely dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I have to give this book back to Dad. So if there are other people out there whose books you think I have, please get in touch because I'm going through them all at the moment. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.